This is Richard Pothick speaking about the sidewalks of New York as playground. Playground areas on the east side were at a premium. Parks were a good walking distance away. Central Park was a healthy hike from First Avenue. The city blocks going west from First Avenue were almost three times longer than the numbered streets extending north and south. A trip to Central Park was almost a walk of a mile. Tenement living required a high quotient of imagination. Carlshurst Park at 84th Street and East End was a Yorkville Park. It was closer, but it was smaller and jammed up against the East River. Playground space at Carlshurst was set up for tennis and for volleyball. In the areas where we could play ball, there were iron posts for tennis and volleyball nets. In my teens, I learned from personal experience that these areas were hazardous places to play. Since the nets were not available to us to play volleyball or to learn tennis, we saw it as the playground for the swells who lived in the high-rise apartments overlooking the East River. We learned early in life to make the streets and the sidewalks our playground. When you were young, before you attended public school, your mother told you to stay on the sidewalk. You were continually cautioned about playing in the streets. There were too many tales of children being run over by automobiles. You learned to use the sidewalks for whatever games you played. You were reminded to stay in front of the house so someone could keep an eye on you, even if it was from five stories above. My first playground was a sidewalk on First Avenue between 80th and 81st Streets. The stores along First Avenue provided the backdrop for my world. One of my favorite stores was Schwartz's Bakery, just down from our tenement doorway. Schwartz's number was 1541 First Avenue. Early in the morning, Schwartz would fill his front window with freshly baked rolls. He would empty his big wicker basket into the corner of the window close to the door of his store. He could almost smell the rolls through the window. A steady stream of customers came into Schwartz to pick out their warm rolls from his huge pile and rush off to their breakfast. I always looked for the Salzstangen in the pile, the twisted salt sticks with their tasty caraway seeds. Schwartz knew that these were my favorites, so often at the end of the day, if it were, there were any left over, and I was on the street, I would get one free. Schwartz baked his rolls and bread in the basement under his store. There were iron doors almost level with the street in front of his store window. These opened outward with steps leading down into the cellar below. He kept the doors open in the morning as he brought up his freshly baked goods into the store. The smell of baking bread and rolls wafted up from the ovens and into the street. Schwartz was the place of great smells. Up from Schwartz as part of our 1543 building was Reeves Grocers. It represented all that was neat and orderly. The shelves were well filled. Everything was in its proper place. The aroma of coffee beans added a distinct character to the store. In the summertime, Matt the grocer rolled down his wide green awning so the front of the store was given a respite from the heat of the sun. And there was a cool feeling when you visited Reeves' grocers. I always thought that Matt's name was Reeves, 
until I realized that Reeves was a New York grocery chain. Matt was an Irishman, slight of build, with a beaming oval face, balding with remnants of red hair, which went along with his cordial Irish accent. I enjoyed visiting Matt whenever my mother sent me down for something she needed from Reeves. Two stores up from our tenement at 1545 First Avenue was Stanio's Fruit and Vegetable Market. The outside stands of bright fruit and green vegetables at Stanio's gave a spot of color to the street. The attraction of Stanio's for me was their son Tulio. He was older than I by two or three years, but a good friend. Tulio helped his mother and father in the store. The whole Stanio family pitched in to make the store go. His mother was a happy, rotund little woman whose voice I can still hear. Tulio! Tulio! Come here! Come here! We need a you! His father was a half foot taller than his wife with a square face and a full head of black hair. They always welcomed me in the store and made sure Tulio had finished his chores before he went out to play. They wanted him close at hand, so we, we often played in the back of the store. The special store on the block was the ice cream parlor at 1549. It was down two stores on First Avenue from 81st Street. The ice cream parlor was wrapped around the corner and had two entrances, one on First Avenue and the other on 81st Street. Tucked into the 81st Street corner was a cigar store, replete with a cigar store Indian. The Indian stood just inside the door so we wouldn't walk off. As you entered the ice cream parlor, there was a long marble counter to the left of the door. Behind the counter on the wall ran two long mirrors. High back chairs were pulled up under the ledge of the counter. There was a railing running the length of the counter on which to put your feet. To the right side, as you entered, were small tables that could seat two people. In the back of the store, past the long counter, was a larger room with tables to seat four people. This room could also be entered by the 81st Street entrance. The ice cream parlor was dimly lit. It gave the store a cool feeling and the air smelled of different flavors. In the hot days of summer, it was a special treat to visit the ice cream parlor and plunk down your nickel for a seltzer water with a couple of squirts of chocolate or maybe strawberry. With a dime, you could get a scoop of ice cream, and if you were broke, you could order just two cents plain. There were other stores on First Avenue toward 80th Street. The linoleum store was one, but they had no attraction. The street toward 80th Street was dull territory. There were other kids on the avenue, but they were mostly older girls. They lived in 1545 and 1547, the three-story buildings running toward 81st Street. The five-story tenements of 1541 and 1543 were in the middle of the block and stood above the rest of the avenue. One of the attractions of the tenements along the avenue were the awnings. I cannot think of a summer on First Avenue without seeing awnings. People put their awnings on their windows at the first sign of summer. Stores had awnings which shaded the extent of their front windows. It took energy to roll the awnings down, so only on particularly hot days would they use them to keep out the heat of the sun. 
Shopkeepers, especially those with produce outside, would hustle out and turn down the awning at the first sign of a thunderstorm. There was something sheltering and colorful about awnings. Awnings added a feeling of community to the impersonal front of the tenements. Some people had green and white striped awnings. Others had just plain green awnings. Some had fringes on their awnings and others had straight edges. Oz was green. put up our awnings around July 4th and took them down after Labor Day in September. The awnings provided shade from the heat of the sun and shelter from the downpours of the summer rain. When a summer storm came up, the rain could beat down on the awnings, roll off and onto the avenue below. You could still keep your pillow on the windowsill and have the awning to protect you. There was always something to see on the street below. We were five stories up, the top floor. So we had a wide view of the world, the First Avenue. There were not many children of my age on our block. Most of those my age were girls. One girl I remember was Elvin Leviak, who lived in 1545. Her family lived on the second floor. It was easy to call up to the window and ask if she was at home. She was a year or two older, but she was a good friend. Evelyn's building and the one next to it, 1547, had a small backyard in which we could play. It was not much space. So most of the games had to be role plays. The girls always wanted to play doctor or nurse and patient. <laughs> the backyard of the tenements were usually cemented with perhaps a small strip of grass along the fence dividing off each tenement. There was a clothesline pole at the back of each yard as tall as the tenement on which each family hung out their laundry. A clothesline was hung from a pulley at the back window to a pulley on the pole. Since our family was in the front apartment, we did not have access to a clothesline. Our drying area was on the roof, where there were lines for drying clothes. In the winter, my mother hung our laundry in the kitchen near the coal stove. When I became seven, I was allowed to widen my world. I began to drift toward 80th Street as my playground. 80th Street was familiar territory since I walked it on my way to Goodwill Sunday School. Goodwill Sunday School was held in a Hungarian Baptist church building on 80th between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. There was only one major street to cross, 2nd Avenue. By this time, I was in elementary school, PS 190, which was on the north side of 82nd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenues. I began to explore the world beyond 1543 1st Avenue. My memory of 80th Street are brief glimpses. There were other boys on the street, but none I remember. My introduction to 80th Street was the ritual of hot Mickeys, which was part of growing up on the street. There was a small grocery and vegetable store on the south side of 80th Street near 1st Avenue. The store did not major in fruits or vegetables like Stanios, but it had some vegetable produce out in the front. One of the rites of initiation into the street gang, if you could call it a gang, was to swipe a potato from the outside stand to make a hot Mickey. Cooking hot Mickeys was a venture which took place in the fall, just as the weather was turning cold. The equipment needed for a hot Mickey was a medium-sized soup 
or vegetable can, a length of thin wire, some coal contributed from your family's coal pail, and a tool to punch holes in the can. Two holes were punched on the rim of the can on opposite sides, and into these holes was tried the ends of the length of wire. You also punched holes in the side and the bottom of the can for ventilation. Into the can you put some hot coals. Either you produced the coal yourself from a small fire you made on the street, or you took them from the coals in your family's kitchen coal stove. On the top of the coals, you put your purloined potato. Some just took it from the family potato sack. It's always had a more exciting taste if it was purloined rather than appropriated from the family potato sack. You made sure the wire was securely fastened on the edge of the can. Then you proceeded to swing the can in large circles above your head and at your side. You knew you were cooking when fire belched out of the holes and the aroma of a baked potato wafted onto the brisk autumn air. You were careful not to stop suddenly when you were swinging the can, especially above your head, lest the potato on the coals came pouring down on you. If you needed flavor that was desired, it fell to one of the miscreants to swipe a glob of butter from the family icebox and also the salt shaker. Needless to say, the cooking of a hot Mickey consumed the greater part of your Saturday afternoon. One other memory from my brief encounter with 80th Street remains with me. It was the election eve of November 1932. Some of the bigger kids and older folks had gathered scraps of wood and old furniture and piled it in the middle of 80th Street, just as the election results were being broadcast over the radio. About nine o'clock, they set fire to the pile of assorted wood and it went up into a blaze, reaching high into the sky. The police and the fire department came, but they could do little about the fire. There was a great mood of celebration among the folks in the neighborhood. Even at seven years of age, I sensed people were feeling great relief. Most New Yorkers were counting on the election of Franklin Roosevelt, one of New York's own. There was a great hope that the Democrats would bring better days for working people. Apart from these brief engagements, 80th Street had no real call on my time. Most of my time in my early school days from 1931 to 1936 was spent either at PS 190 or in the activities of Goodwill Sunday School. I enjoyed learning, both in school and at Goodwill. In a sense, I was already becoming a student. In part, this was decided by my bout with rheumatic fever when I was five years old. I remember the pain and the stiffness in my limbs, so immobile that I had to be fed. Dr. Dick, our family doctor, told my mother in the aftermath of the rheumatic fever that I had a heart murmur. He told her it was systolic. His advice was that I not engage in anything too strenuous. The impairment was to shape my life. If my tendency was toward books and learning, this early prescription was to set my course in that direction. By the time I was in third grade, I was wearing glasses. My teacher, Francis Burns, noticed that I couldn't read the blackboard without straining my eyes. Mrs. Burns advised my mother that I needed glasses. Public school teachers had a major influence beyond the classroom. She and her fellow teacher, Mrs. Coyle, appeared to me to have real concern for their students. Both of them lived in New York on the other side of Third Avenue. On one occasion, Mrs. Burns asked my mother if she would do her a favor. 
She had noticed how poorly one of the boys in my class was dressed. Victor came from a family which had fallen on hard times. Mrs. Burns told my mother that she was always impressed with how well I was dressed. She gave my mother money to buy some clothes for Victor and found some way to get them to him without embarrassment. For the time I was eight, I was making regular trips to Nagel, the optometrist on our street. Nagel's store was right next to the ice cream parlor off of 81st Street. I skipped fourth grade and went on to fifth grade. I was not an exceptional student, just inquisitive and hardworking. I especially enjoyed geography and spelling. My interest in geography may have actually carried over from Goodwill Sunday School. We had many maps of Bible lands in the early missionary journeys. Spelling bees were a regular event at PS 190. This was a favorite of Miss Coyle, who was my teacher in fifth grade. Miss Coyle would have the class stand in a circle around the room. There was always great anticipation in each of these ventures. Each student would take a turn spelling a word. The class empathized with each student as he or she would urge out each letter of a word. Then the us could be heard, especially from the good spellers, when a fellow student would mess up a word. Any misspelling would return you to your seat. Some students went back with great relief, others with a sense of defeat. I was a decent speller, so I was among the last in the circle. I had one major competitor, an attractive dark-haired girl named Eleanor. She consistently edged me out in the competition. My classmates suggested I was really throwing the contest because I liked her. One of my longer walks was to the public library on East 79th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. The public library had a more formal feeling than any other building I knew. It was an imposing structure with a wide set of stairs entrance, a gray stone facade, and inside the high ceilings, it was quiet, giving it a really a, a very inviting atmosphere. The library was a treasure house. It provided me my first adventure in thinking about life. I was attracted to books about early caveman and how he lived. I remember taking out those books and fantasizing about how it would be to live life with little to begin with. In like vein, Robinson Crusoe and the Swiss family Robinson were among my favorite stories. Both tales told of venturesome folk who started from scratch and put together a reasonable existence. Later in life, I found organizing from scratch became a fascination for me. It became a theme in my life. My first ten years on First Avenue laid the foundation for life ahead. Life in those years was geographically circumscribed. Within a three-block radius of my tenement, there was a whole world, a playground on the sidewalk and the street below. There were the shops that provided everything you needed, a bakery, a grocer, a fruit and vegetable market, an ice cream parlor, and your own optometrist. Your neighborhood was preparing you for the future. An elementary school on 82nd Street, a Sunday school for religious training on 80th and 2nd Avenue, and a public library for exploring the world on 79th Street. These were the essential building blocks for integrating life and preparing for the future. <music>